Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm doing really well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and thanks for your amazing work in this space. I had a chance to catch up on some of your podcasts this morning, and just really great work. It's great to have your voice in this community. Oh, thanks so much. I'm also a big fan of your work, everything you are doing for a couple of years now. It's so exciting to get the chance to talk to people like yourself and learn from your journey and discover all the up and downs you had during the last few years. Hear your thoughts. That's super exciting and super grateful to have this chance. What are you right now, Jason? I follow you on Twitter. I see you post a lot of pictures in the woods. You like to spend time outdoors, right? Yeah, yeah. Two years ago, my wife and I moved to central Massachusetts where she grew up. We're less than a mile from the house she grew up in on a lake. And it's lots and lots of woods and very rural. And that makes me happy. I think that's sort of my happy place is out on the water or out hiking in the woods and sort of gives me the opportunity to recharge. I always say this is where I want to die. I'm very happy here. And I guess that sounds kind of morbid, but this is definitely a, it's a good environment for me. I can imagine that. I also live kind of rural area and it's easy to touch grass and find these beautiful spaces to spend the weekends. And it's important because we spend so much time online. Everybody that's working or spending a lot of time in the digital art space spends a lot of time in the computer, right? And I think that makes a lot of sense. Jason, I was preparing for the interview. I went to some social profiles. I went to your LinkedIn <laughs> to see what you were up to early on in your career. I was surprised because you had a couple of jobs and you were doing different things in marketing and technology as well. I was wondering how were your beginnings in the art world? How did you start to appreciate art? Was it since when you were young, when you were a kid, or was it later on? How did that start? Art in general? Yeah, so it's funny. If you looked at my LinkedIn People might think that I sort of got my start in tech and marketing and later came to art, but it was actually the opposite. From a very, very young age, I think I often cite it as when I was in kindergarten, when I was age five, I won best pumpkin drawing in a contest. And I came from a family that's very tech oriented. So my older brother's an engineer, my dad's an engineer, my younger brother's an engineer. And I figured out at a super young age that I wasn't going to be able to compete in sort of the areas that the family was really strong and kind of sought out something that I could be good at that kind of played to my strengths. When you're a kid and you get attention for something, that's sometimes all you need to send you on the right path. And then I was lucky. My dad, who has very different tastes in art than I do, but made it a point to bring me to the Museum of Fine Arts probably a half dozen to a dozen times a year when I was at a very young age, pretty much immediately fell in love with art and decided that I wanted to be a painter or an artist the same way that a lot of other little kids think that maybe they want to be a baseball player or a fireman or something like that. And that held true all the way through middle school and high school where I spent most of my time uh, in the art room and a lot of my time at home, sort of working on my own art and studying art history. I had my first show when I was 15 or 16. The local town hall gave me, there was an art gallery there and they gave me space to show paintings that I had at a pretty young age and got a taste of what that was like. And of course, wanted to go to art school. So went to uh, Framingham State College where I studied studio art. So painting, sculpture, printmaking, thought I wanted to be a teacher. Really, it was when I graduated in 2001, the need to get a job that pulled me away from art. That became sort of a thread later, and I'm sure we'll get to this. The frustration of not being able to find a way to make a career as a creative or as an artist kind of stuck with me. So I kind of 
put my head down, got into this technical track working at tech companies and don't want to sound ungrateful, very grateful that I had those opportunities and was able to make a living and take care of my family. But all the while trying to figure out how can I reconcile this tech world I was working in and the tech world I was growing up in with 100% desire and passion to want to be an artist and be making art. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a common theme. Many people in the art world, they start creating art as artists. And then at some point, they find other areas, like in your case, and we'll get to your companies. You have founded a couple of companies that are very important in the space. You're both in media, but also creating software technology via Club NFT and media through Right Click Safe. And we'll get to those. But Jason, we talked about early 2000. When did you actually start to work in art? How was that transition? You had to find jobs in tech, in marketing. And then how did you actually start to make this transition to have a job in the art world? Did that take a lot of time? Was that something that you were pursuing on the side? How did that happen? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how we define having a job. And I hope that a lot of artists that are listening to this will relate to this. If having a job means you get paid for it, that only happened in the last year or two when I carved out a job for myself because there still was no real opportunity for that, right? But that doesn't mean I wasn't working on art, whether it was my own art or writing or presenting or trying to build tools to help other artists. I think that work, my work as someone in the arts, whether it was making my own work or shifting my focus to sort of supporting the work of others, has been continuous since I was very young. Getting paid for that work was really only since I've started Club NFT. And even then, it's a startup. So our goals are less about me making a whole bunch of money so much and more about like these things that we think we want to accomplish in the space that I'm sure we'll get to later. So yeah, hopefully other artists can relate. The working in art and getting paid in art is sort of two different things. And I feel like my work in art has been nonstop for my entire life. Yeah, that's a very good, you put it very nicely. You're working, right? Even when you are in art, you're working, maybe you're not getting paid, but at the end of the day, it's work and it's about supporting other artists. And that's quite interesting for those that are not familiar, you were very early in the movement. You were one of the early adopters into blockchain art, NFTs, collecting. Can you tell us a bit about those days, Jason? How did you discover the blockchain and NFTs and what attracted you to it? Yeah, you bet. I guess the part that I left out between 2006 and 2010, I went back to school nights and got my master's degree essentially in digital art. It was called the Dynamic Media Institute at MassArt. And that's where I got a lot of early exposure to sort of digital art history and more working on my own coding skills and learning about generative art and a lot of these things that were still pretty early on. It was kind of a unique program, but I also learned that I had more time to work on things I was interested in than I thought. During the day, I was at a startup and then at night I had classes and then all weekend I was doing homework. When that was finished, I still craved having big, juicy projects that really played to my interests. So I started this project where I was building out, I had read about forgery in the traditional art world and that something like 15 to 20% of works of art at auction in museums are either forged or misattributed. There's some debate about how precise that is, but if it's anywhere near that, I thought, well, that's problematic. So I had built out this database of complete works by 20th century artists after asking around at museums, how is it possible that we could have this large percentage of misattributed and forged artworks? And they all said, well, there's no single database that actually has all this information. People reference books and the books are expensive and it's hard to find. 
So for three years, nights and weekends, built this massive database that became the world's largest database of complete works by 20th century artists. Pretty nerdy stuff. But I was like, if I don't share information about this data or sort of write about why these insights matter or why this database matters, when I get hit by a bus, all this work will be for nothing. That was actually Art Gnome, the name that I go by now in my original blog. It was supposed to be like the human genome, but for art. It was this passion project that really kind of spun out of my graduate work that led to me creating the Art Gnome blog. And I was at an AI company at the time and had come out of a big data company, was really in the heart of the Boston tech scene and was curious about what artists were doing with AI and art going back, I don't know, 10 years ago. We started writing about, in addition to my own database and sort of the insights from there, about the interesting work that lots of artists were doing with art and technology that I felt like wasn't really getting the attention that it deserved. And for me, felt like it was really the most important art of our generation. There was this disconnect. I started getting invited to art world events to talk about the database I had created. I think mostly because people were afraid, who's this random guy who has all these insights on the art market and what could they mean for the value of our work? But when I would get into these events, I kind of came into the art world through the back door. I would ask folks, I was already the weirdo there that didn't really fit in, uh, but I would ask folks during the break, like, how come no one's collecting digital art in the traditional art world circles? Like, how come it's not being valued as uh, super essential? Because if you look at our generation, the thing that's most unique about us is really that everything we do has become sort of transformed digitally. I always say like how we date and work and communicate and travel and socialize and read and produce art, like everything has shifted. Yet at the time, let's call this eight years ago, although you could argue even five years ago, people were sort of hesitant, particularly in the art world, to really treat digital art with the same level of respect, I think. It's kind of shifted and started using my platform in artgnome.com, I had a growing audience, to highlight some of the artists that were using new technologies in interesting ways. I think it was late 2017, Ahmed Hosni, who I had interviewed about using AI to make predictions in art auctions. He wrote some of the earliest papers on that. We went out for pizza and he told me, you should really look at blockchain. You've built this database that is designed to help with authentication. You complain all the time about how people don't value uh, digital artists and partially because they feel like it's not something they can own. You can see the digital art for free. And you lament that you couldn't find a career for yourself as an artist and had to work in tech. I think blockchain could help with three of the major problems that you're looking at. So I like to say that I came to sort of what we were calling blockchain art. We call them NFTs later, but in late 2017, we we're still calling it blockchain art. I came to blockchain art, not the typical way as someone who was really excited about cryptocurrency and loved blockchain. It was like trying to find an excuse to use blockchain. I actually just had three major problems, three or more major problems in the art space that just logically matched up to a lot of the affordances of the blockchains. Wrote an article for my blog in late 2017 called The Blockchain Art Market is Here. Some hubris there to make such a grand statement, but could see right away that there were some benefits, some problems that could be solved, or at least areas where the blockchain could be applied towards helping solve problems in art. And that article was just, I stumbled in right time, right place. I woke up the next day had dozens and dozens of invitations to sort of answer questions and speak around the world because the crypto market, unbeknownst to me, had just sort of hit a peak late 2017. Crypto punks and crypto kitties were sort of taking off. Artists were starting to become more interested in ways that they could use the blockchain. And through the magic of ranking well in SEO on Google, I sort of overnight became the expert. Of course, I wasn't an expert at all. 
And that required me to go and really get to know the folks who were the experts in what we then called sort of the crypto art space, learning from them when really kind of elevating their voices through my blog and later on through a podcast called The Dank Rares that I launched in early 2018, really gave me a chance to get to know that community early on. And I was invigorated by this idea, which sometimes I feel like we've sort of lost sight of. But back then, the idea sincerely was that we were going to create an entirely new art world, one that was more open to everyone and that could leverage and benefit this new digital world we live in and the blockchains. It can sound kind of idealistic now, but that's really what motivated and drove a lot of us back then. There were no sales. It wasn't really so capitalist driven and it was more about this altruistic attempt to build sort of a new, more inclusive art world that was more equitable to, to artists and created more opportunity. So many great points there, Jason. I think it's very interesting that you're one of the first persons that actually came to the blockchain because of a problem that you just described. I think that's a key in the long term for the space in art or in general in crypto that the technology actually solves problems as the ones you described. That's very interesting. I was going to ask you about Artgnome. I'm a big fan of the blog. I think you were a pioneer. As you described, explaining about generative art, about the artists that were working with digital mediums, but at the same time, you were combining that with very interesting statistics, also about art history. So you were merging both worlds and you were explaining, coming back to, I don't know, 100 years ago and what's the value of those artists these days and also doing interviews with what you said were the leaders of the movement. I'm a big fan of the blog. And I was actually surprised because I think you don't post there that much anymore. I wanted to ask you, why is that? And I guess it's because of Right Click Safe, which is the publication you co-founded and one of the most important sources of information these days. But it's a little bit different than Art Gnome. So I was wondering, why haven't you posted recently in Art Gnome? And you could describe the difference in the vision of Right Click Safe in contrast with your early blogs. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I personality-wise, I'm generally drawn to tiny new subcultures where I feel like things are being overlooked and I can kind of go in and explore and make observations and connections at a fast rate in sort of new territory that maybe hasn't been combed over as much and feel driven and compelled to sort of help shine a light on things that I think are really cool that maybe not enough people are paying attention to. That was a lot of the work of Art Gnome. It's hard maybe for people to remember now out of context, but digital art, generative art, and even crypto art in 2016, 17, 18, AI art, those things were not really getting a lot of love and attention. They were fairly niche. For my personality type, kind of coming in and helping people maybe make sense of them in a way and sharing the aspects about them that I found really appealing in an emotion-driven way. Again, this wasn't a job. Art Gnome wasn't a job, and I had no illusion that it would become a job. It was a passion project where these were things that I loved, the discrepancy between how much I loved them and how little anyone else cared was really what drove me to write. I just wrote over and over again about these artists that I thought were really important and overlooked. But a funny thing happened along the way. A lot of the things I was writing about became huge. We went from no one caring about generative art to it's super fashionable now and like trendy and lots of people love generative art. We went from crypto art going into a pretty nasty bear market and people writing it off to the explosion in 2021 that we saw around NFTs that it would be hard for people to predict. We went 
Well, I was going to say we went from a lot of people not liking AI art to everyone loving it, but that didn't really happen. I think it's still pretty divisive where there are a lot of people that aren't really sure how they feel about AI art. But point being, sometimes I use the analogy, I don't need to be a DJ to tell people to go listen to the Beatles. People already know who the Beatles are. I see my job or my role or, or where I'm happiest going to things that people maybe don't know about or don't really understand about that I'm passionate about and telling others. But we have so many great people talking about the topics I was writing about five years ago and doing a better job now than I did then, I don't really feel the need, quite honestly. I look at the funny guys and Lorandum and you, Kahlo, and on the generative front, you're doing a great job and I don't feel as much like I need to do that. So that's part of it. The other half on the RCS side, and I talked to Alex Esterick, our editor-in-chief about this. Actually, we were talking about it fairly recently. If Art Gnome's job was to try to get people to pay attention to these things that maybe were being overlooked, RCS's job is to make sense of what happens when everyone rapidly comes and starts taking that interest. So how do we build something that's bigger than just me and my voice, which was Art Gnome, or even Alex, who does an amazing job with RCS and his voice, and instead find a way to elevate lots and lots of different voices from all the other subcultures in the digital arts space? So really, in an attempt to do something that was bigger than me or bigger than us, meaning Alex and I, we really tried to architect RCS in a way to amplify as many voices as possible and sort of intentionally create collisions and dialogue within this space at a time when it was growing super rapidly. That explains a lot. By the way, I'm also a big fan of Alex. I think he's doing an amazing job coordinating and editing all those amazing writers and articles. And that makes a lot of sense because RCS is more about dialogue and conversations. How you explain it now makes a lot of sense to me. In that regard, I wanted to ask you, because you have done so many things, you have seen the space from the early days, and then you started a blog that was successful, and I can see it was because of your passion. You were kind of a contrarian during those early years. But when it comes to RCS, you mentioned that now generative art and AI art, where AI art is debatable, but there is a still a huge group of people that enjoy it. So the question there is, what are the challenges from running this sort of media company, this publication these days? What are the hard things and the positive things of starting something like a digital magazine? What are your thoughts there, Jason? Yeah, so first off, to be as clear as I can be, Alex totally runs RCS. My work was sort of the boring work of going out and raising enough money from venture capitalists and investors to be able to start Club NFT and RCS. And to talk with Alex about, in the beginning, potential directions. And periodically, I get to do interviews and, and try to help out here and there. But the challenges largely fall on Alex Esterick's shoulders, and he has done amazing amount of work over the last few years. But that said, I'm not oblivious to some of those challenges, and some do fall back towards me, which is, how do you make a publication like RCS? How do you fund it so that it can be around a long time, particularly when you're tied to a volatile market like Web3 and NFTs, where things go up in value and down in value. It's largely been funded through Club NFT. So we have an advertisement up at the top and we raised some money there. And as part of my conversation with the investors, I said, look, I don't want to start a marketplace. There's plenty of people selling NFTs, but there are some major problems here in this space that need to be solved. One of them at the time was that there was no publication treating digital art collectors, NFT collectors, and NFT artists and digital artists with the same level of respect uh, that traditional art media was. We set aside funds for that, and we've sort of tried to avoid becoming a marketplace ourselves, which is sort of the obvious route towards monetization. 
but it's hard. It's not easy to figure out. Our current runway is probably somewhere between a year and a half and two years if we really tighten our belt. And trying to figure out how to perpetuate and keep something like this going isn't necessarily easy. That's one thing that I sort of observe. And then another, we do want to be on the edge. And it does feel sometimes like we've said a lot of what needs to be said or what we want to say about generative art, let's say, for example. And often I think we ask ourselves, are we straying from our roots if we regularly highlight folks that already have substantial audiences? I think Alex and I share a desire to find people that maybe don't have an audience yet. I think part of our conversations are like, instead of just amplifying folks that maybe are already known, let's work a little harder to try to find new voices, new people that really will benefit all the more by helping to share their story and amplify their story. So yeah, staying fresh and staying alive, quite frankly, during a bear market, I think are both quite challenging. Yeah, I can understand. I know it's hard to be profitable in the media space. I run the newsletter and I can tell you it's the same. It's a lot of discipline and it's more about gathering an audience and you need to have passion for this to keep going. Just a reminder for everybody in the audience, we have a big crowd today, Jason, that's fantastic. Anybody has a question for Jason, you can use the bottom right chat icon. You can tweet your questions about right click safe, about art gnome, about collecting. You can ask him who is excited about these days. You can use your question wisely. And about club NFT, Jason, it's fantastic. You haven't mentioned that, but you are solving a very important problem there, which you probably know the math there, but I would say 90% of people that collect NFTs are in the aware of the problem that your NFTs might not be safe. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's one of the main premises why you started Club NFT, to give tools for collectors. This is probably the most important one. Can you tell us a bit about that, Jason? The security aspect of keeping your collection alive, basically. What's the issue there and how is Club NFT solving that? Yeah, I think it's in keeping with sort of my personality. When you were asking earlier, like why I don't write as much for Art Gnome, well, I felt like I needed to draw attention to all these great artists using tech five, six, seven years ago. And now the world's doing a good job of that. Well, with Club NFT, I see a massive problem. I think the largest problem in all of NFTs in Web3 is that there's this sort of dependency. People don't think about how NFTs are constructed and the art that they love and fall in love with when they go to these marketplaces, about 90% of the time, it's not on chain. I experienced this because I've been in the space for a long time. I came in in 2017, started collecting late 2017, early 2018, and gave a lot of these lectures and wrote a lot of these articles where it's like, well, this is great. We talked a lot back then about decentralization, and we were borrowing a lot of our values from sort of blockchain culture and crypto culture. I would say this is great because if any of these marketplaces go out of business, the tokens in your wallet and you own this NFT and there's self-sovereignty and decentralization. But then in that last uh, bear market, as marketplaces started to go out of business, a bunch of our NFTs started to break. And back then the, the market was much smaller and people were spending tens of dollars, maybe hundreds of dollars would be super surprising. But as things started to break, our emotional attachment to them was still there. And I thought, well, this is not what I thought. I thought NFTs were sort of indestructible. And I think I just assumed that the art was on the blockchain, but it turns out the art's often stored on marketplace private servers. So if the marketplace stores the art on their private server and there's a permanent link from the NFT to their private server and they go out of business, you're left with an NFT that permanently points to a broken image. Not such a huge deal in 2017 and 18 when maybe people weren't as invested, 
But we now have billions of dollars collectively invested into NFTs. So it's about 40% of NFTs that store their images on private servers. If we're talking about Ethereum, about 40% use IPFS, which is a best practice that we can talk about a little bit, and about 10% that store images online. But the important part is if you're buying NFTs that use IPFS, as long as you store a backup of all the artwork and the metadata in the exact same format that it was uploaded when the NFT was created, then you can actually restore those NFTs later on. So it does put actually the control back into the collector's hands. Pretty nerdy stuff. I'm sure I'm losing some people even right now as I speak about it, and I need to do a better job of making it easier for people to understand. But no doubt in my mind, it's the biggest problem in the NFT and Web3 space and that we've built these castles that we're trying to build on a sandy foundation because the potential for NFTs to break, it's not really about will they break? It's really a matter of when will they break? And it's millions and millions of NFTs. In talking to the tech folks that I know as a collector before I started Club NFT, it's like, oh, well, you have to find the CIDs for every component, for every NFT. I already had hundreds at that point and download them in this exact right format. It wasn't really a thing that a non-technical person would want to do or really could do. A big part of what we started with with Club NFT is building the tools to automate that for collectors so that you could just hit a single button. You put in your wallet, you hit a single button, we go through and crawl and find all the necessary media. We give you analytics to tell you which NFTs are dependent on private servers, which ones use IPFS, which ones are on chain, and provide those backups in a format that you could restore them later on. So nerdy stuff, but really important. And then we've sort of expanded from there. We've built a tool that helps people discover new artists. Paradoxically, as more and more marketplaces came out and more and more artists kind of came into this NFT space, I found it harder and harder to discover the kind of art that I love. But as I interviewed other collectors and other artists and asked, how do you discover new artists? They all kind of said the same thing. They would go into a hush tone and say, well, I go and I look at what the people I respect collect and discover new artists that way. And if there's a bunch of people I really like who are collecting the same artists, a lot of times that'll point me in that direction. That sounded an awful lot like an algorithm. And I got with a team and said, maybe we can build an algorithm that will look at all the art you've collected find all the other collectors who've collected similar art, and then figure out who are the artists they've all collected that you haven't collected yet. Because it was really important to us that the algorithm, instead of making everyone collect more and more of the same people so that we have fewer artists making more money, we actually wanted to design an algorithm that intentionally diversified collecting practice. So it's intentionally showing collectors artists they've never collected with the hope, again, our dream in from the beginning was let's create a new art world. This new art world Instead of having a very small number of artists who make lots and lots of money, let's create an algorithm that helps collectors find lots and lots of artists so that we can actually diversify who gets supported and how many people get supported. So that's sort of our discovery tool. We have right-click save, and then we also do pinning now. With IPFS, someone has to pay to make sure that the artwork stays there so that the NFT can continue to reference it. Again, nerdy stuff, hard to do on your own but we automate that process for collectors as well. Really trying to go as broad as we can in terms of providing the missing tool set for serious NFT collectors and take a lot of pride in the tools that the team has been able to put together. I think that those are amazing set of features. And as you said, that's basically what's needed these days. I think that's the right way, Jason, because at the end of the day, probably all the generative and AI art fans see all of us kind of early adopters. So most of the people interested in blockchain and NFTs these days are highly technical or at least curious. That's interesting. I think 
more or less they enjoy also understanding the process right behind these tools. Maybe this needs to change if we want massive adoption, but we cannot change that. That goes slowly over time as these tools, like the ones you're building, they get easier to understand and to use. But I think the terms are the right ones. It's the best way to explain it. So what is actually happening? Like the same thing with the algorithm you describe. You could have built this in a way that the same artist it's probably better for the algorithm because there will probably be more sales. But the way how you guys are doing it, it's very noble and it helps artists, which is critical to keep the space moving forward. So that's fantastic, Jason. Actually, I wanted to ask you something and I think I might be wrong because I read this a couple of weeks ago. You were featuring the Medici newsletter. It was an interview and you had a problem with one of your earlier NFTs that I think it was an X copy and it got lost because of these issues you just described. Is that right? Was it an X copy one-on-one? That's a horrible thing. Is there a chance you can recover it, Jason? Yeah. So I use this example because for better or worse, when there's money involved, people tend to pay more attention. I was the first collector of X copy. I owned X copy's first NFT. Uh, it was minted on a scribe. And Ascribe might harbor no ill will against them. They were pioneers in this NFT space, and we wouldn't have the marketplaces we have today without them. But it was early on, and among the many issues that collectors ran into after Ascribe shut down, they did use private servers to store the art. Even if they hadn't, that would still be an issue, but that was certainly one of the many issues with Ascribe. So yeah, those early marketplaces... For those of us that were around, we ran into some issues and the hope is that we can learn from them. It wasn't just one or two. I would say probably more than half of the NFT marketplaces shut down in between 2018 and 19 in that initial bear market. I know I sound kind of like a doomsayer when I'm like, you should really ask yourself how your NFTs are constructed and create backups and worry about preservation. It can sound like, well, Art Gnome's just a wacky guy. Who knows if that'll happen? He can't predict the future. I'm not predicting the future. I'm reporting on the past. Until these things are solved, there's zero reason to believe that we should have any other outcome. So yeah, at one point I had an offer for like a million dollars or more because it was Xcopy's first NFT, right? But because it was broken and there's no real way, separate from where the art lived, I don't think I ever actually received a token either, which is sort of another issue. Custodying and things like that were issues with other platforms early on. There are still platforms today People may not even realize it, where when they buy the NFT, unless they proactively go in, they're not custodying the token. I guess what I would tell collectors, whether or not you use Club NFT is sort of a separate issue. I really encourage them to get curious about how their NFTs are constructed. Once you know that sort of everything breaks over a long enough time period, the question isn't like, is it going to break? It's how is it going to break? And what can you do to preserve it? For marketplaces that are custodying your tokens, set up a wallet and make sure that you're custodying it. The analogy I use sometimes is it'd be like if you bought a car and you left it at the dealership and the dealership burnt down, but you don't have that car anymore. You want to make sure you actually custody that too. But yeah, we lost additional a scribe, rare art labs, digital objects. Really about half of the early marketplaces went under. Not super surprising, right? For a lot of folks that came later, you can kind of see it today. There's marketplaces starting to shut down and sales are sort of at an all-time low in the last few years. Not all of these marketplaces are going to make it. So getting curious about how your NFTs are constructed and how to preserve them, whether you're an artist or a collector, I think this is a good time to take those things into consideration. Right. Yeah. And the, and the reason why the marketplaces might shut down is because the cost to run these services is very high. I had the chance to talk with Jordan Lyle, 
who is there in the audience who launched a marketplace recently, Prohibition, also with Cypher from FXHash. There are costs associated with running the whole service, the storage, as you said, trying to build a technology that preserves the NFT. So yeah, as you mentioned, it's highly possible more marketplaces might go down. And the question, Jason, I had a question about artists. What can artists do? Because Club NFT built a tool for collectors. What could artists do if they want to preserve their art? What's your advice there for artists? Yeah, we get a lot of requests from artists to build a tool similar to the one that we have. Unfortunately, even though they sound like similar problems, they're quite different. So going into a single wallet or one or two wallets owned by a collector and crawling through and finding all those NFTs and backing them up is fundamentally different than for an artist because the artist's NFTs have ended up in dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of other wallets. So it's sort of a different issue, but it's one that we're interested in trying to work on. But in the meantime, I really do think step one is just being curious. It's remarkable, and I don't blame anyone. I, I mean, it happened to me. This is why I started the company. But it's remarkable how many people don't really ask themselves about how an NFT is built and what it is that they've bought given how much money and how much emotional investment we've made in all of this, I think is that, because again, this is what I think happened to me, you hear about all these virtues of the blockchain and you just assume that everything must be there, given how much talk there is about it. But it's almost never the case for all the debates and all the people that talk about how much they love on-chain things and this, that, and the other. So once you realize 90% of the time the art is not on the blockchain, you better, I think, as a collector or as an artist, ask yourself, well, then where is it and who's paying to keep it there and how does it stay there? As an artist, I think you'd go and talk to the platforms and ask these questions before you start minting there or if you're using sort of your own contracts. Uh, take some pride in sort of understanding the craftsmanship side the same way you would if, I don't know, when I was a painter, I would want to invest in sort of archival materials or think about how do I preserve or help the collectors that are going to collect my work preserve this work in the long term. We don't get to negate these things just because we have NFTs or digital work. We really have sort of a responsibility to try to produce work that'll last unless our intention is sort of artistically for it to somehow disappear. So yeah, ask the marketplaces and get sort of curious about how are these built? Where are you storing? I would ask a marketplace if I was an artist or a platform, if I was going to mint on a platform, where does the art get stored? What happens if you guys go out of business? What happens to my collectors? What happens to my artwork? I think those are very fair and reasonable questions to ask up front. That's right. Uh, this conversation should be out there. And that's great advice for artists as well. We got a couple of questions from... Arhi Mort, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he has a couple of questions, Jason. One is, are there other fundamental problems with NFTs that you see today? And a second one, which is a little bit more positive, what are your thoughts on how NFTs and digital art are displayed in IRL and in real exhibitions? What are your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's funny. It can sound like I somehow don't like NFTs or I'm telling people not to buy NFTs, which is, of course, for anyone that knows me, ridiculous. I'm like the biggest NFT cheerleader. Historically, there is one of the first really big collectors and have tried to be really supportive of the movement and helped shine a light on artists. But I think when you love something, you have to pay attention to the fact that it'll need, especially early on, there's going to be flaws and areas of infrastructure that need support and improvement. I think the backing up the art and preservation is an important one. Other big problems that I see in the NFT space, I still don't feel like we've really solved the onboarding problem. It's still a painful, long process, in my opinion, to try to help explain to someone 
what crypto is and how to get cryptocurrency and connect their bank and send money over into maybe their Coinbase wallet and then install a MetaMask wallet and shift that funds over into the MetaMask wallet and then connect that MetaMask wallet, but make sure you don't mess up or else someone can take all your money. And then there's this thing called gas, which you have to explain, which is where your money kind of just disappears just for the right of transacting. So like taking a new person from zero to owning an NFT goes one of two ways. Either you take them the traditional way and explain how everything works and they're like, why am I doing all this? This is a pain in the butt and it's kind of scary. I feel like I can get scammed. Or you try to negate it all and you build a marketplace that accepts credit cards. And at that point, I'm not really sure you need it all on the blockchain and all this crypto stuff. So there has to be some sort of happy medium where we don't just jump past and obfuscate the purpose of NFTs in the first place, but we don't drag people through all the painful steps. I'm excited to see people make progress on that front. I also think if we're honest with ourselves, we just grew too fast. If you look at 2021 and 2022, we went from a bunch of art and tech nerds in the dozens sort of experimenting with this altruistic approach to try to build a new art world with eyes towards really trying to make it more fair for artists to a $70 million sale that brought the entire world stampeding in and a lot of the values and goals went flying out the window. It became much more market driven. And I think a lot of people got wrecked, spent money they couldn't afford on things they didn't really want. And a lot of people got burnt. So I think I'd like to see sort of a slower, more steady, thoughtful growth over time fueled by better onboarding and maybe some more guardrails around preservation and protection against scamming and rugging and all of that. I still wholeheartedly believe in the space. And I don't think people are going to stop collecting things digitally anytime soon. I get asked sometimes, do you think NFTs are going to be dead or like this has gone forever? And I say, nope, there's a 30, 40 year trend towards owning things digitally that no one can stop. The trains left the station. My music went from records to CDs to MP3 players to like pretty much just in the cloud. I don't own anything physical on the music front. I used to work at a VHS rental store. Obviously now, when was the last time you held like a DVD or a VHS? I don't even hold physical books anymore, which I'm sort of embarrassed to say, but I listen to Audible all the time. This massive trend towards sort of digital ownership is here to stay. Will NFTs be the solution? Probably not forever, but at the moment, I think they solve a lot of sort of the nascent issues around digital ownership enough so that I think we'll cycle back when crypto bounces back. We probably have at least one or two more cycles in NFTs. Maybe they'll get rebranded. That tends to happen if there's sort of too many people got burnt. But fundamentally, they solve enough issues that I think NFTs will be here for a while. Right. And I think we are talking about problems, Jason, but you are also solving many of those. So I don't think people think you hate NFTs at all. <laughs> and actually, the first problem you're solving is related to security in a way. The second is about discovering new artists. And those two, I believe, are great steps to solve the onboarding problem in a way. There are many issues. It's not easy. But yeah, as you said, it just grew too fast. And we need time for technology to the user interfaces, the UI, UX to get better. And then we'll shoot. I see my friends. I see my family that are not that techy, some of my friends. And yeah, it's still, we need a little bit more time for them to actually use it. I think we have... And for everybody listening, just a reminder, you can use the bottom right chat icon to ask questions for Jason. We have a couple of more minutes. So if you have a question, this is the best time to ask. And also, if you join late or if you cannot stay until the end, this is actually a recording for the podcast, which I share through my newsletter and in all podcasting platforms. So you can just check that out later at any time if you want to listen to the whole episode. One more question from... Are he mort? And then I'll ask 
the final question, Jason, which I'm trying to ask to every guest, which is a tough question, put you in a tough spot. <laughs> I um, like <laughs> But first, the one from Artie Mort is, are you still in love with generative art? Yeah, it's a good question. I kind of alluded to it earlier. It's my personality type to go to things that I feel like are being overlooked. And it would be hard for me to argue that generative art is being overlooked. There are so many great voices out there really championing generative art right now. It doesn't feel that desperation to point to it now and tell scream to the world. I wrote an article almost exactly five years ago called Why Love Generative Art? And it was sincerely a love letter, uncommissioned, just out of my straight from my heart love letter about why generative art was so important and how it ties to art history. It did really well. And I think maybe had the impact I was hoping for. It helped some people maybe understand a bit better why someone like me would be so passionate about generative art and dispel a few myths. But having done that and seeing how many other great voices there are out there, I don't feel the need as much to go out and trumpet. Now, if I were to open the window and yell out figuratively, you should all be paying attention to generative art, all the voices would come back to me and say, we are, it's great. So I don't feel the need to do it as much. Instead, I'm opening the window and saying, all your NFTs are going to break if you don't back them up or things like that. Some other maybe unpopular or lesser known things that I feel like are better areas for me to make a contribution. So still love generative art, though. My passion and interest for generative art goes back 20 years. It was an early flash action script user and creator of generative art myself. It was a lot of what I focused on in grad school from 2007 to 2010. Early processing user and really kind of admired and strongly looked up to for the last 20 years, folks like Casey Reese and Jared Tarbell, people that have been making generative art for a long time, Verk Molnar to go even further back. My interests in generative art go back decades, but my desire to feel like I need to pipe in and convince everybody that it's worthy as art have sort of diminished as people have become more accepting of it and other voices have become stronger champions. Right, and that takes me to a follow-up I just thought about. So any digital art form that you think these days that people aren't looking at that are unpopular these days is there anything like that i don't know that it's not looking at or unpopular but i do tend to think in sort of macro cycles i think my brain works a little bit different than other people's brains and sometimes that works in my favor and sometimes it doesn't but i do think because we've got so much generative art coming in so quickly in the last few years that we may see the pendulum swing. We usually do in art history. And I think we'll probably move away from more abstract, sort of often geometric kind of work that we see, not always, but often with generative art, and maybe more towards hand-drawn digital art. I think of the artist Santiago, and there are a lot of other artists in his group. I often look at who he collects. There's this artist collective, You Don't Know Who We Are, an artist, Little Terror Arts, Haas Drubelwaffle and Human Colonel. I think some of these are just like other personalities of Santiago. I should interview him at some point so I can figure it out. But for me, I see a lot of that work as almost an antidote to too much generative art because it's sort of more figurative and hand-drawn and has a lot of the qualities that generative art doesn't have. I call it like digital expressionism. It makes me think of expressionism in the early 20th century, German expressionism. I could see the pendulum swing that way is almost an antidote to too much generative art getting out there at some point. So yeah, I don't know that it's those artists who necessarily overlooked, but as someone who looks at and guesses at macro trends within the space, I could see us moving towards 
things that are almost less algorithmic and maybe more portrait oriented and things like that is almost an antidote. Not sure when that would happen, but it's almost always the case we swing from one side to the other historically. Yeah, history repeats itself, as they say. Makes sense, Jason. That's a very thoughtful analysis. And by the way, if anybody listening is looking for Santiago, another artist that Jason has mentioned, all these links and information will be included in the podcast description. So you can check that out later. Jason, time for the top question. Who are top three emerging artists to watch for you today? Yeah, so I mentioned some of the artists that are maybe non-generative artists that I collect. It's funny, when people used to ask me who I'm excited about, I would feel the need to come up with a list. And then later on, I realized I should just tell them who I'm actually collecting, because that's the real honest answer. I am collecting a lot of those artists I just mentioned, and we'll add their names in there, and a lot of them still are affordable. But on the generative art side, because I know there's a large generative art audience here, and that is a long-standing passion of mine, I don't know that they're emerging. That's not really my strength. I don't really pay attention to like whose market's growing faster than other people's and this, that, and the other. I more just collect the art that I like. But what I've noticed in generative art this year that sort of caught my interest is that because people have been able to slow down a little bit more, the projects have gotten maybe a little bit more involved or interesting in ways that I find exciting. Anna Lucia's collaboration with the G's Bend quilters I thought was a really cool project because so often, for whatever reason, in generative art, when you ask generative artists like what their inspiration is, it's like, often white male modernist painters from the 40s and 50s or whatever. So to find another reference point that used geometry and was historically really interesting and to add new threads, I thought was great. And the work was just really interesting. So Anna Lucia's project I thought was great. Operator is Human Unreadable. They're friends of mine. And I was lucky enough to have multiple conversations over the year that they were developing that project. And the attention that they pay to every single aspect of their project is amazing. The way that they look at this whole process of like long form generative art and platforms and like the commercial aspects, rather than this sort of rushed feeling of I need to come in and capitalize off of all of this before it's no longer trendy, they kind of come in and are critical of all of it, just thoughtful and critical of it. The project itself is sort of expands what's possible rather than trying to fit in. So for folks that don't know it, Operator Human Unreadable was released on Artblocks. It's one that I really encourage folks to look at. And it goes beyond sort of just image making. So there's a whole choreography component and it's just, it's a beautiful project on many levels. Kriller by James Patterson and either Stephen or Stefan Ramsey, I think is a really well done again project where if 2021 and 2022 was this race to like shoot out as much work as possible, 2023 has given us these more mature projects. Kriller's dealing with what happens when hand-created, hand-crafted code and generative art gets replaced by AI and looks at a future where stuff like that could happen. He scans in a lot of his hand-drawn work. And I think there is sort of this larger question that generative artists could and sometimes do deal with, but will become increasingly meaningful about how do we continue to insist that we inject human elements into a world where culture is increasingly algorithm-driven, make sure that we're asking, is this the culture, is this the art, is this the music that we want? It's almost like generative art is so good at doing things so perfectly and so precisely, you have to put effort in to introduce human error and entropy sometimes. And I worry that without that, we might be stuck with sort of too uniform, too slick a cultural landscape. You almost have to actively fight. When you're dealing with algorithms, there's an inherent tendency or an affordance in algorithms to produce self-similar work. That's the way algorithms work. So 
we need our generative artists to proactively think about ways to kick the machine to make sure that the outputs and that the art that gets created really serves us as humans and our human desires and tendencies. And then the last one, Jason Salavon, again, not sure if I'm saying these names right, Totem, which is like this massive AI-driven social critique work. It just makes me think about Jason's been around forever and having been into code-based art for 20 plus years and then watched in the last two years, a lot of artists that have done amazing work didn't necessarily get all the attention in the last two years. And some artists who are fairly new or maybe kind of just landed at the right time on the right platform have sort of taken off. I think there's still lots of work to be done to go back and look at some generative art pioneers and code-based art pioneers that maybe didn't get the attention in sort of the rushed efforts in the last year or two or rushed enthusiasm to sort of crown who's important and who isn't important. And hopefully now that we can slow down, we can sort of celebrate some of these other artists that have been contributing for a long time. So yeah, I guess this trend towards more thoughtful, longer term projects that kind of go beyond just static image output, the space and time to really think about artists that maybe haven't had as much credit as they deserve. Is, those are things that I'm sort of excited about for 2023. Yeah, so many amazing quotes, so many great names. I had the chance to meet some of the artists you mentioned, Operator, the duo. They were telling me how they were creating projects in different cities. They lived in Mexico City for a while, in Berlin, and I believe they are now in Madrid. They sort of take a project and develop it slowly and it's influenced by these cities indirectly. I found that very interesting. And yeah, what you mentioned that how to input these sort of errors, these sort of accidents into the algorithms, it's quite interesting. And again, the last point on the early generative artists, I think that's very interesting. And also from a research perspective, because it's not easy to find them as they were not that covered 20, 30, 50 years ago, it's actually hard to find information about them. And I believe there are many more that were yet, and it would be amazing when people finally give them the right spot. So Jason, this has been amazing. Thanks so much for your time, for being here, sharing your thoughts, sharing your experiences. I hope we can do this again in the future. And yeah, I'll keep, I'll, I mean, I'm always looking forward for right-click safe, but also to the new developments that you guys are doing with Club NFT. I think you are doing, once again, a very important job in educating people and actually giving them the solutions to the problems you are seeing. So thanks so much, Jason, for everything you are doing in this space. Yeah, thank you for having me on and for your interviews. I had a chance to catch up with a bunch of them this morning, and it really is a skill and a talent that I think sometimes gets overlooked. It takes a certain personality to really almost put yourself second and want to go and use your time and energy and efforts to highlight the work of others. You're doing a phenomenal job on that front. I think sometimes folks doing that work don't necessarily get the credit that they deserve. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the space and thanks for having me on. Thanks for your words and a pleasure to have you. Have a nice day and thanks to everybody that listened today. And remember, I'll share this through the podcast, through my newsletter, so you can expect it in a couple of days at calo.xyz. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Take care, everyone.